the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Hello? Summer? Gee, you sound so far away. Oh, you're right. Now is the time to plan for AC. With Barron's preseason air conditioning special, you can skip the line and save big, like $4,000 big. We've stocked up, and there's no better time to upgrade your whole home comfort system. Special discounts apply to anything that cools, including air conditioning, ductless, and electric heat pumps. With energy savings, you'll enjoy for years. Barron's home performance experts look beyond the box, finding you affordable ways to improve the comfort, health, and energy efficiency of your home. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Call Barron now while supplies last and save up to $4,000 when you upgrade your heating and cooling system with qualifying rebates, incentives, and a Silver Shield membership. We've secured low interest financing so everyone gets cooling. See you soon, Summer. Barron, your full-service HVAC, electrical, and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. Skagit Farmers Supply operates three full-service agronomy centers, trained agronomists, precision equipment, and a full range of crop protection. Located in western Washington, they market organic bagged products in stores throughout the Northwest, including Hawaii and all needs. There's a lot going on right now, and broadcasters are on the ground covering all of it, bringing you the weather, the traffic, and breaking news, all while entertaining you 24 hours a day. Someone needs to tell you what's going on around the world and in our hometowns, and that's our free radio. We are always there. We are broadcasters. Visit wearebroadcasters.com or text radio to 52886 to learn more. Furnished by NAB and this station. So what happens next with farming and, well, a couple of different issues actually have been sort of on the front burner of late with Olympia in session. Um, We've talked a lot about uh, buffers recently, and we're going to have more on that coming up, but also on this overtime issue. As we know, uh, the problems with how our state has gone about um, changing its law to require overtime pay for agricultural labor has caused a few different major problems. Um, one, and first and foremost, being for farm workers who are having a lot harder time making uh, the amount of money they want to make because of the unintended consequences of the new law. But then also, and very much related to that problem, is it's putting extreme pressure on farms to manage this, to be able to still you know, farm here in Washington and make ends meet. By the way, if you're going to farm for any significant amount of time, you do have to make ends meet at some point. I know people in the farming world are like are saying, yeah, like, well... Every, you know, few years, you hopefully have one of those that's uh, not in the red. (laughs) 
That's how hard farming can be, the ups and downs. This is The Farming Show. Welcome to a Saturday morning here on KGMI. I'm Dylan Honkoop. Joining me on the phone uh, this first half hour is Pam Lewison, uh, the director of the uh, Ag Initiative on Agriculture at uh, Washington Policy Center with us uh, today. And Pam, let's start. I mean, you're... During a legislative session in Olympia, you're just following all kinds of stuff. It's busy time for you as well as the lawmakers. Um, so you have plenty I'm sure you can talk about. But let's start with this overtime issue. You've been doing some research and analysis and exposing some of the some of the truth about what this is doing here in Washington State, the real impact that that overtime and the, the rollout of that new requirement for farming – is having on, on workers, on the farms themselves. And another thing that I've noticed you writing about of late is food security. Um, all these things are impacted by this. What are you finding? You know, I think the, the ag overtime uh, situation is interesting for a lot of reasons. But I think uh, tying it back to food security and particularly um, the cost of food in general, I think is uh, a helpful way to make it relatable to people who don't farm. And so I wanted to look and see what, you know, what are farms making right now? We make about seven cents for every dollar spent on food. And okay, hold, um, hold on, time out. That has to register with people. So mm -hmm. what you were saying, and I recognize I'm repeating, but I think this is so important that it needs to be repeated. I'm going to say it in a slightly different way. For every $1 that um, an American spends on food, only $0.07 cents makes it back to the farm mm -hmm. on average. That. And that $0.07 cents has to pay for everything of how that food is grown, planted, you know, taken care of, fed, whatever, whether animal or or not, uh, agriculture. Just, everything has to come out of that uh, for the food that's produced, the land, the debt that has to be serviced, the labor, and that's what we're talking about here now, that has that goes into the hand labor that often goes into producing our food, all out of seven cents that you pay for your food. Yep. It's and nuts. It is nuts. I mean, I think the... Uh, if you do the math, the average American household with four people, um, you know, husband and wife, two kids, one dog, you know, the yeah. sort of what we all think about as yep. a stereotypical white, home. white picket fence, uh, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it spends on average $300 a week on groceries. $300 a week? Which means that <sighs> on farm, you get $21. For all that food for all that food. So um, when we start talking about things like overtime, uh, we're here in Washington, we pay an average of $20 an hour for, uh, for a straight wage. Straight time. Not That's not overtime. Time. Yep. Straight time. So when you're looking at time and a half, that's $30 an hour. Uh, and you're having to figure that out on $21 worth of groceries uh, grocery money coming back to the farm. Mm -hmm. um, what is interesting about this in particular is that as a community collectively, uh, Washington farmers provide about nine, almost $10 billion to the state's economy, uh, just in the things that we produce. 
Um, but when you start looking at overtime pay in particular, um, we quickly run into a deficit with that almost $10 billion, which is hard for people to believe, but we have 164,000 farm workers in Washington state, give or take. And if you're paying everyone $20 an hour at your straight wage and $30 an hour at overtime and trying to bump folks from the 40 hours a week that they will, you know, that we're going to be capped at effectively next year, bring them back up to 55 hours, you're talking about an operating deficit for us all as a community of $2.6 billion. The money just isn't there. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that the the farming quote-unquote industry um, being seen as some huge scary monolith, which isn't true at all, it's family farms, there's just all, you know, there's scads of money and farmers just need to quit being greedy and cough it up and pay their workers better. So number one, you're exposing how that's just not true. Secondly, another thing that you're exposing here is this average pay issue. You know, I think that most people probably assume that all or virtually all farm work happens at minimum wage, and it's just not true. I mean, already here in Washington State, we have a decently high minimum wage, but it's higher than that already. And that, I just want to point out, I mean, you're saying $20 an hour, that's average. That means some below, some people are making significantly more than that per hour. So it is not like people doing farm work, people actually, you know, harvesting, growing the food on farms in Washington state are making, you know, tiny, minuscule, as, as activists would say, exploitative wages. And I think it's important to note, too, that um, our wages in in the U.S., not just in Washington, are regional. So yeah. if you are in the South, you're making significantly less. Uh, and effectively, everywhere else in the country pays less than we do for farm work at that straight wage time. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, most other regions, to put them in that time and a half bracket, just come close to the $20 an hour mark. Wow. So the narrative in public is a far cry from reality on the farm. Absolutely. And I think it, it's it's crucial, I think, to make sure that um, farm worker voices are the ones that are being heard. And uh, when you look at the segment of folks that are talking about these issues as being exploitative, we're talking about a group that represents less than 1% of farm workers in this state, making it hard for the other 99% to make a living. That part is crazy when you think about it as well. By the way, we're talking with Pam Lewis, and right now she's the director for the Center for Agriculture at the Washington Policy Center, uh, very involved in what's happening in Olympia, where policy for this state is set, right? And she's actually doing analysis and digging up the truth. And what do the facts actually say about some of these things that, you know, have such heated rhetoric behind them? Like, you know, people, this mis misconception, this false narrative, really, that people are hard done by if they 
don't get time and a half overtime over 40 hours a week. I mean, that is the narrative that underlies this whole issue. And it ignores some of the things that we've just been talking about in addition to the fact of, as you just said, listening to the farm workers and what do farm workers themselves really want and recognizing that farming is different than a factory job. And as I have said before, and I'm now saying again, if you don't want factory farming, which we don't have here in Washington State, by the way, but if that's the buzzword that you're worried about, you don't want factory farming, don't treat farming like a factory. You know, and a system that's designed to pay factory workers doesn't work in a system that is actually in tune with nature as we want it to be. Right? I mean, that, that's another underlying factor here um, that people just often don't seem to get. It, it works differently in farming. I guess I will say, and I know you have better information on this than me, that you can often call right to memory when my memory fails when we talk about these kinds of things, is it's not just farming that does this, right? There are other, plenty of other segments of our economy that have similar overtime exemption issues that farming has been so lambasted for. There are. In fact, uh, I think one of the most overlooked probably is rail workers. Uh, rail workers are exempt from overtime, <clears throat> and there is some discussion around changing that. But at the moment, uh, you know, they work 12-hour shifts, 15-hour shifts um, with no overtime pay. Um, mm. You also think about um, other kind of shift work that people take for granted. And the one I think about almost immediately are EMS workers. Mm, yeah. So if you have, if you have some sort of medical emergency, the last thing you want is your EMT to have that alarm set on their wristwatch that says, "Oh, my eight my eight hour shift is over. I am done trying to resuscitate you." <laughs> uh, so which yeah. is why there's Not good. there isn't. Uh, there isn't an overtime structure um, the way we see it in the way we see it playing out in ag for uh, EMS workers. Think about that, folks. That is, I, people can hopefully understand that more clearly. How that is a different scenario than someone clocking in and out on a forty-hour, you know, nine-to-five job. We need those people. It's a life-saving issue there. For growing food, it's also something where the time constraints are different. The pattern, the schedule is different. There are other reasons. But, again, people seem to have a hard time wrapping their, their head around that. Well, I think in ag with the, the time constraint issue in particular, I love the example that the current State Farm Bureau president gives uh, because they grow fresh produce. Rosella, and, Rosella Mosby. We've had her on the what, show here multiple times. Yeah. What Rosella will tell you is zucchini in particular will grow a quarter of an inch an hour in the peak heat of the summer. So if they stop picking uh, because everybody's reached their out eight hours for the day, uh, the likelihood is that when they go back to the field tomorrow, the zucchini that should have been picked will be too big for their buyers. Yeah, it won't, won't make grade. It'll all be trash and they'll still have to pick it to get <laughs> to get it out of there mm -hmm. it'll still require that labor and it will be food waste then at that point 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, I guess the pushback, Pam, and I'm curious what you would say to this, but the pushback is, well, yeah, let, let folks then continue and finish up that work. You just have to pay them time and a half. Why, why don't you just do that? Again, the narrative is that, you know, farmers just need to step up to the plate. And, you know, as many people will say, especially on social media, they just need to, you know, get with the times like everybody else has already had to do. And obviously, if you can't do that, you don't have a uh, a sustainable business model and you just, you know, need to, to get it together. I think there's there's two main arguments about that in particular. The first is um, I would challenge people to find another business that operates with such a slim profit margin because the profit margin for most farms uh, in agriculture and not just in Washington but everywhere is 10% or less. Uh, You compare that to some of our other major industries, building and construction, uh, profit margins are anywhere from 40 to 50%. (laughs) Uh, You look at Um, Software engineering, profit margins are a whopping 75%. Uh, So when people talk about needing to just absorb that cost, what they're asking farms to do is figure out where they're going to take from in that 10% profit margin to account for this new increased cost. Yeah. And the numbers I've heard, I'd say 10% would be healthy. Well, it depends on the year though, too. I mean, some Mm -hmm. years you may make well over that because it's a good year. The next year, Mm -hmm. your profit margin may be negative, but yeah, averages I've heard, you know, a lot of more labor intensive crops are looking more at like one to 5% in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where in that margin and again, this is all because it comes out of that only seven pennies out of a dollar that comes back to the farm. Out of that, where are you going to squeeze? The, it's already squeezed to the max to stay in business. And hopefully some years you make a profit because other years you are going to have a loss. If you're doing that and playing that game, everything's already tight. Labor in particular already counts for 50 to 60, in some cases 70, and I've heard as high in certain crops, certain fields, whatever, as high as 80% of the cost for growing that food can be tied up in the labor to make it happen. And then you're saying, oh, yeah, for X number of hours, it's going to be 50% 50% higher just doesn't exist, unfortunately. And I think the other the other argument to counter that is, um, you know, we could certainly increase that seven cents on the dollar and everyone could pay more for food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we live, we have the fortune to live in a country where food is abundant and it's healthy, uh, depending on what you seek out. Uh, and it really doesn't cost a whole lot. So, uh, you know, compared to other places in the world that have to import a great deal of food. And so when you look at um, sort of our, that seven cents on the the dollar in particular, sure, we could easily, uh, you know, ratchet that up until we got to a point where farmers were actually making enough profit to absorb uh, these costs that just sort of appear. Uh, But if you do that, then ultimately the people who are suffering in that scenario are the people who are already food insecure, low income households or incomes Mm -hmm. with, you know, one income stream in that household. So when you start looking at how that uh, has a ripple 
throughout the rest of our economy, it's pretty significant. It's, it's not good. And, you know, I've just thought about and heard from other people, too, on some of these things. Like we go back to the argument of, well, you just need to get with the times. You need to pay overtime. If you can't do that, you don't have a sustainable business model. Well, what are your options then? You know, if you truly can't afford it, because I think people are saying that because they don't believe it's true. But it is true. And if that is true, what happens then? Your choices are, you know, do what you can to limit your costs to stay in business, which is why hours are being reduced um, to avoid overtime and pay as much as possible because the money just isn't there. Or another thing that people are doing is farms get bigger because a larger operation can, you know, find efficiencies of scale and move costs around. Well, people don't want that. They like the small farm. Um, they aren't happy about farms getting bigger. Well, it's issues like this that are forcing farms to either get big or get out, as that famous controversial line went. Um, and then beyond that, if they do go out, which some farms will and some farms have been, where does that food production go? If it's not sustainable to produce that food here in Washington, it goes to foreign countries. And what are people paid there? And what are the environmental protections there? And what is the carbon footprint to bring that food all the way back here. And then, you know, what happens to our local communities that relied on growing food um, to survive? And what happens to, you know, think about food banks. If your food is grown in a foreign country, are, are those foreign countries donating to our local food banks? Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they aren't. Pam Lewison, she is the director for the, uh, of the Center for Agriculture at the Washington Policy Center. Pam, thanks for your time. Thanks for the work that you do. We'll have you back soon. Thanks, Dylan. And as we continue on the farming show, I do want to mention starting Monday is the Watkin Family Farmers online auction called Growing Our Future Together. Find out more information uh, at whatcomefamilyfarmers.org. There's a link there where you can check out the items to bid on, and bidding gets underway for a week. It's an awesome way to uh, support the work at Whatcom Family Farmers. And big thank you to our lead sponsor for that auction, Larson Gross. Straight ahead, Bill Bryant joins us to talk about buffers and how the governor, Jay Inslee, killed an effort to help protect streams and restore salmon that's what i thought that's what you were supposed to be all about we'll get the truth from bill straight ahead where do you go to find the best steakhouse between seattle and vancouver bc northwest washington's famed steakhouse at silver reef is the place for award-winning unforgettable fine dining savor our northwest source dry-aged usda prime steaks finished to perfection in our 1800 degree broiler immerse yourself in world-class elegance browse our award-winning wine and spirit list while our attentive staff help to create lasting memories reservations are recommended through silverreefcasino.com or by calling silver reef casino resort at silver reef casino resort we've got that escape the hustle and bustle of the city and get ready for a fun and relaxation filled getaway luxury hotel rooms yep championship golf Mm-hmm. top rated casino with all the best slots and table games yes and yes world-class dining at the region's best and wine spectator award-winning steakhouse yes please the total package is only missing one thing you silver reef casino resort located off i-5 exit 260 we've got that 
Cascade Radio Group and HireMeWa.com present the CRG Job Fair, happening Thursday, March 16th from 2 till 6 p.m. Find your next full-time, part-time, or seasonal job, and if you have skills, we have employers on-site that want to talk to you. And if you need training, we have the businesses that'll train you, too. Don't know what type of job you want? Talk directly to businesses actively hiring from a multitude of industries, all at one convenient location. Businesses like LFS Marine, the United States Postal Service, Unity Care Northwest, West, Skagit Speedway, the Bellingham Fire Department, and more. Thursday, March 16th only, the CRG Job Fair. Happening at Four Point Sheridan in Bellingham, next to Fred Meyer from 2 to 6 p.m. There's no better place to find a quality job. So save the date, Thursday, March 16th, 2 to 6 p.m. Multiple businesses, multiple industries on site, including JTI Commercial Services, the City of Bellingham, Aloha Laundry, and Lifeline Connections. Job Fair, Thursday, March 16th at Four Point Sheridan in Bellingham. Visit this station's website for all the details. KPUG is the sports leader, bringing you complete coverage of the Seahawks, Mariners, Huskies, and our high school athletes. We put you in the stands of the biggest games, including the Super Bowl, the World Series, March Madness, and state championships. Plus, KPUG features the best in sports analysis and entertainment, from Dandrick and Jim Rome to Mike Greenberg and our own Mark Skolton. If it's happening in sports, it's on. KPUG 1170, 97.9 FM, KPUG1170.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. The salmon can't keep waiting. Politics keeps getting in the way, and it's crazy. We talked about this a little bit last week, and more information coming out since we last spoke about what happened when farmers, tribes, lawmakers all came together. This, you think I'm joking if I'm saying that. It actually happened in Olympia just within the last month or so where people who normally don't get along well started building some trust, started collaborating. I mean, this is something we've talked about a lot with Whatcom County's water issues and, and the need for that and that, how that's where the real solution lies. That's where the real solution lies for salmon recovery across Washington State. And that's been our problem with a lot of the you know water rights adjudication that the, the state has proposed and is pushing for Whatcom County. Uh, that's been our concern there is a lack of collaboration, as well as this issue of stream buffers and restoring salmon. Um, you know, the, the concern had been not collaborating with a farming community. I mean, that's a key partner. We, we need to be all working together, and farming has a lot of that land along our stream. We, we've got to be working together to make that actually work if we're going to restore our streams. It has been working. The farming community has been involved with it. We've highlighted many projects here on the program of doing riparian tree plant, tra- planting trees along our streams and a lot of uh, floodgates and a lot of other 
other projects that are helping salmon. We need to do a lot more, of course, we know, but it's when politics gets in the way that we have issues and things don't move forward. This is The Farming Show. Welcome to a Saturday morning. Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. Glad to have you with us. It turns out, uh, as we mentioned uh, again briefly last time, uh, that Governor Inslee is is the one playing politics. The guy who says time and again how urgent things are for protecting salmon. Well, when people start working together and come up with a plan that isn't his specific plan, suddenly he gets all prickly and actually kills a salmon recovery plan, essentially, is what was being worked on in Olympia. Joining us right now on the program is a guy who just recently wrote a column about it, but more importantly, he's a founding board member of the Nisqually River Foundation. He was a member of the Seattle Port Commission in the uh, from 2008 to 2016, and he ran for governor. You may remember his name, Bill Bryant, and he joins us again here on the program. Bill, it's great to have you with us this morning. Um, the salmon can't keep waiting, and and this piece that you've published via the Inlander, um, you know, for those of us on the west side, we maybe don't read that publication as much, but we should certainly be reading this piece because it's very important here, uh, titled, Disparate Groups Found a Way to Work Together to Preserve Riparian Habitat for Salmon, but Jay Inslee preferred well, a different approach and torpedoed the whole thing. Uh, again, welcome. Thanks for being here. Explain what's going on with this. You bet, Dylan. It's great to be back on the show. Uh, you said, you know, in the introduction that you know everything was coming together to help protect salmon and restore riparian buffers along streams on on private land, and we're talking pretty much uh, ranch and farm and forest lands that are private, and that politics got in the way. It wasn't politics. Politics were actually, for the first time in a long time, working pretty well. You had Republicans and and Democrats and the Farm Bureau and tribal leaders all getting together and writing a bill they could all agree on. It wasn't politics that got yeah. in the way. It was the governor who got in the way. And as you pointed out, uh, he had a bill. Uh, he did last year. He introduced a riparian uh, restoration bill. It came out that he had not not only had not consulted agriculture on it, which we really wouldn't expect him to. He should, but we shouldn't expect him to. <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, but he hadn't even he hadn't even consulted his own department of agriculture. And not only were there concerns within the egg community, but there were concerns within other communities. And and it, it didn't go anywhere last year. I understood there was year, a, a, there was a broad section of the tribal community that wasn't even plugged into that effort yeah, last yeah, no, year. This, and that's this, something this we was, talked about a lot here on the program. The Lorraine Loomis Act, the, the big dumb buffer concept of 200 foot plus buffers on either side. of So potentially 400 foot swaths of streams we calculated yeah. would have taken you know, potentially 30,000 acres of farmland out of production in Whatcom County alone. And that's why there's no trust, because in the past, the governor has always gone in. And whenever he's talked about riparian restoration, you know, everybody, rightfully so, at least all the, you know, a lot of people in the ranching and, and farming community, they hear taking my land. Yep. And, and this heavy handed regulatory approach that he wants to apply across the state, whether you're in, and water, uh, friendly, plenty, Whatcom County or water deprived Whitman County, you're going to still have the same standard. And it makes no sense, but it increases the bureaucracy in Olympia. All right. And at the end of the day, 
This is about Jay Inslee getting the credit and building more bureaucracy. Mm. If along the way we can save salmon, well, that's kind of an extra bonus. But we had this year another uh, another solution, excuse me, another bill by the governor on riparian. It came before the committee and Republicans and Democrats and ag and tribal members all were on different sides. They're all at each other's, not each other's throats, but they were all in opposition. And the chairman stepped back, the Democrat chairman, and he was like, you know what? I think that the agricultural community and the tribal leaders have a lot in common here if we just all step back and start listening to each other. And so he made a huge statement when he said, there's either going to be a bipartisan bill or there's going to be no bill, mm. which killed the governor's proposal because that wasn't going to be a bipartisan bill. No way. And it forced tribal leaders and the Farm Bureau and agricultural leaders to sit down and say, okay, what can we agree on? What can we move forward on? What will work? And how do we take into account that there are differences between the west side and the east side of the state? And there's differences between tribal concerns and salmon recovery efforts on the east side and the west side of the state. And what those people did was come up with a bill called 1720, which didn't put Olympia in charge. It put the local conservation districts in charge. And the local conservation districts worked collaboratively with the agricultural and the tribal communities to come up with practical voluntary solutions to repair riparian zones on private land. Republicans supported it. Democrats supported it. The tribal leaders and the agricultural community were behind it. It passed out of committee with bipartisan support. How often does that happen? Uh, and and on, on, in an important environmental measure, how often does that happen? I'll tell you, never. Yeah. And it, yet it wasn't the governor's bill. And so when it went to the budget riders, the governor made it pretty clear he wanted his bill, not this one. And so deadlines just lapsed until it, it fell behind and eventually died. And that is all on him. And it betrays the fact that he's more concerned about getting credit or building up a bureaucracy than he is about saving salmon. Well, you know, that and, and again, we're talking with Bill Bryant right now, uh, a former candidate for governor and uh, a founding uh, board member of the Nisqually River Foundation, as well as uh, a person who served on the Seattle Port Commission uh, for eight years in the 2000s. Um, Bill, you know, in times past, in previous efforts on all of this buffer stuff and a lot of salmon recovery stuff. Heck, a lot of environmental issues, period. You know, that's that will often be the pushback is, well, this is all just about bureaucracy and about having the state run it and a land grab. And I think oftentimes that's heard by people who are on board with the plan initially um, in the environmental community on the left, uh, typically the, the Democratic uh, folks here in Washington state, whether the lawmakers themselves or the, the general public say, oh, come on, you know, th that's that is just an attempt to get out from under this. This is an attempt to get out from under doing the right thing. You're just, you know, trying to find a red herring here to distract from doing the right thing, protecting the environment even though that keeps being said and it keeps becoming more and more clear that indeed it is actually true that this governor is not about and and 
again, we've seen that be a political argument in the past. It's evolved to this point where now the governor is actively working, politically working against a measure to protect the environment, to restore salmon. How do we get to this place? Well, How, well what's driving this? We kind of got to this place by a lot. Um, but what I think he really was afraid of, Dylan, is I was af- I'm, I'm, I believe that I can't prove this. I don't know what he was thinking, but I bet he was afraid it work mm. that we would have a bill that would put local conservation districts in charge, and that the agricultural communities and the tribal leaders would together voluntarily figure out what to work, what would work on different streams, different rivers, different tributaries, and come up with voluntary programs that would fit the needs of that community. Rather than having it dictated from Olympia, Mm. I bet you he was afraid that would work. And that then you would build a a working partnership between the agricultural and the tribal communities. And he does not want that. Politically, it is much better to keep them on opposite sides of the fence. And uh, that's that's sad. Because but that it's means the that, truth. As you, said, it's, but as you said, that's when politics gets in the way of getting something done that we must get done so that our grandchildren will be able to see salmon return. And how people like Jay Inslee use divi- you know, division, dividing people as a political tool to maintain and expand power. More, that is more important than getting the objective accomplished or achieved. And that's sad because if you were really concerned about salmon recovery and you introduced and you were governor and you introduced a bill that was heavy handed, regulatory, one size fits all all across the state and it got shot down. But out of even though it was shot down, tribal leaders, agricultural leaders, Republicans and Democrats all came behind an alternative plan. And your real concern was saving salmon. You'd get behind that alternative plan. It might not. it might not be yours, but you'd be like, hey, it's not quite the way I was going to get there, but let's take, let's try out your idea. The, That's what you would say. This makes it's me, not, it's not, go ahead. This makes me realize one of the arguments for having a heavy handed approach that folks in Olympia, including Jay Inslee and many others, one of their arguments has been, well, this collaboration that we saw just happen won't happen. They're saying, well, people won't work together, so we have to do it the regulatory route or even yeah, the litigatory the route. With that, the problem with that, Dylan, is that it, there's an example of where it has worked. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that I'm the founding uh, one of the founding members of the Nisqually River Foundation. In the 1980s, the, the, the treaty rights activist, civil rights leader, uh, Billy Frank Jr. from the Nisqually pulled together tribal leaders, agricultural leaders like Wilcox Farms, Warehouser, Forest Lands, and got everyone at the same table. And in the 1980s, they began putting together a plan to voluntarily restore riparian habitat throughout the Nisqually watershed. I met Billy in the 1990s, about 10 years after he got started on a riparian restoration project in Muck Creek. And we worked together then and uh, for years after that on projects in the Nisqually and to save Puget Sound. These were voluntary efforts. And because of the collaboration between the tribe, the Nisqually tribe, and agricultural leaders and private forest landowners in the Nisqually, the Nisqually today stands as an example of how you can put together a locally driven voluntary program to repair uh, watersheds and riparian habitat. 
the governor might say it won't work, mm. but the problem with that is we got an example of where it has worked. And this was an opportunity to scale up the Nisqually approach across the state. But you do that and you're putting power in local communities, not in Olympia. You know what? And if your objective is to put more power in Olympia and need more tax dollars, well, then you got to go with Jay's approach, not with a local approach. Here's the 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 sad angle. By, by the way, this is the Farming Show. I'm Dylan Honkoop here talking with Bill Bryant, uh, former candidate for governor here in the state of Washington, former uh, Seattle Port Commissioner and uh, founding board member of the Nisqually River Foundation, um, talking about Jay Inslee's behind-the-scenes efforts to kill a bipartisan collaborative effort between Republicans, Democrats, tribes, farmers, and others to protect salmon. Yes, it's the governor who is standing against the salmon protection, salmon restoration plan. It, it's just bonkers. But when you look at it, you see what's really going on. You, you think about how this all played out is it finally becoming clear to some to, to more people now what what the mo is of this governor well, is I this is this finally he, he, a step he, too far i don't know because i don't know how many fingerprints are all over it um you know his his natural resource advisor testified against the bill um but you know he might say that that was it and he didn't really have anything to do with it and i can't prove that he did i just have heard that you know his opposition put a chilling effect on the on the budget committee yeah um, well, and I've heard that and, from uh, multiple other sources as yeah, well. Yeah, but, you know, what's a chilling effect? Uh, it's just unfortunate that he had an opportunity to get behind it, and he didn't. Well, and, and, and it, you know, you say it's about him hanging on to power. Really, he shows here that he did because he killed it, right? Well, he certainly didn't help it along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact I mean, this, that I mean, even you though Republicans— you had, you had Republican and Democrat support, yeah. and you had tribal leaders, and you had agriculture coming on, if the governor had said, this is something I want to see happen, you got to believe it would have moved a little bit more than it did. No kidding. Um, but, I mean, does it show, again, that he can he can still do this? It's it, Even when all these parties, disparate parties, support it, he still has the, the power to kill it. That is kind of a dictatorship, well, it's, isn't it's, it? It's, it's not, no, it's, an, it's a being a governor. I mean, it, a governor can weigh in on legislation she or he doesn't like. I mean, and they do. It's just really unfortunate that this was a bipartisan uh, bill with a lot of support. And he kind of had his advisors go out and let legislators know he didn't support it. Why? Why not? Why not move forward on salmon recovery? You're not going to get here. So there's not like an alternative out there that can pass instead. So instead, it's another year where we're not going to move forward. Why not give this voluntary conservation district centered approach a chance yeah. wow. and they had the opportunity to do that and they didn't i think this i mean i think everybody in the state of washington needs to know what governor inslee did here because i believe it's unconscionable and it's directly opposed to what most people embrace and what jay inslee says he embraces which is improving protecting the environment in our state uh salmon in particular uh and not only their importance to uh the environment but also you know indigenous communities and the cultural importance there's just so much wrapped up in it and we've been preached uh to about this for so many years from none other than jay Inslee and others and now he's the one standing against it it's bizarre it's maddening but I think everybody needs to know so they can start asking some real questions about what this guy's MO is at the end of the day. 
Um, yeah. What, you, so you don't think this will have any, you know, political ramifications uh, longer term as people start to to see that maybe the, this guy isn't what he's what he says he's about. Well, let's hope there's no longer term because longer term presumes that he's going to be in office for more than the rest of this term, and uh, right. this state's too important and precious to me to go through a fourth term of Jay Inslee. Yeah. And well, I mean, the, the political ramifications I, I was hoping for uh, and mentioning were negative ones for Jay Inslee. Uh, and that's what I'd prefer to see. So, I mean, the, the guy shouldn't keep winning elections with the way that he behaves and not just on this. I mean, we've talked about this many times on this program of different issues where he's played these kinds of games. To me, this is the, one of the most stark to date of him ignoring the public good, the environmental good, and instead playing the power game. Uh, Bill Bryant with us. Uh, Again, the piece that he has on it, you you can find it in the Inlander. You can also find it at, uh, you know, we're sharing it at Save Family Farming, Whatcom Family Farmers, etc. on social media, because we think everybody needs to know the truth about what happened here. Uh, The Bill Bryant, again, a founding member of the Nisqually River Foundation, uh, as well as a Seattle Port Commissioner from 2008 to 2016, and uh, somebody who ran for governor. Um, uh, and boy, uh, how uh, that would have been different uh, had we had somebody of his integrity as governor. But there's there's my uh, last plug, Bill. Great to have you on the program. Thanks for hey, continuing Dylan, thank to you. highlight this stuff and, and and still being involved.